0: I believe the mozzarella stick is pretty well optimized.
1: Yes, you have a lot more cheese. Like, we are talking a wedge of cheese dropped <laughs> and <laughs> batter and fried, and it's it's way too much. It's Wait, way too
0: much. Is it more surface area to volume or less? More surface Do you get more fried volume. stuff per cheese? You get
1: more cheese. More well,
0: cheese I guess you per fried stuff. get both? But because, that I means a it bigger will change chunk. change the ratio. But you
1: definitely have more cheese than fried. Yes.
0: Than a, than a stick. Yeah,
1: like a mozzarella stick I feel like is more fried with a little bit of cheese mm-hmm. this is like lots of cheese with some fried
0: i know that a sphere would be the worst case scenario <laughs> that is the minimum surface area to volume ratio like, possible you get
1: bites where there's like no fried. but don't you want
0: more cheese or do you want more surface area i mean if i just wanted cheese i would just eat cheese <laughs> i yeah, have a very direct path the, the cheese. <laughs> the i'm there for water. some of the fried with the cheese it's a ratio you gotta have it but zero yeah. fried is the wrong number
1: Oh, See, so you, sure. you don't like our mozzarella sticks. You don't like the cheese sticks in the fridge. There's che- no fried. we have
0: cheese st- Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we have mozzarella. Oh. We do. We have pull-apart cheese. Gotcha. We
1: have pull-apart non-fried cheese.
0: Non-fried cheese. We have the
1: don't-die-early cheese. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Live for your die-early cheese. It's from New Hampshire. It's amazing. <laughs> Live for uh, your die-early. Hi, Steph. Hey, Chris. How are you?
1: I am great. How are you doing?
0: I am doing very well. I'm back from vacation.
1: I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah,
0: it's been a while. This is my first day back in the office in like one and a half weeks. So it's been a while.
1: And you did a staycation? You, Do you travel?
0: Half staycation. My wife and I rented a beach house up in Gloucester, Massachusetts. We live down in Norwood. So it's like an hour away from our house, which I guess counts as a formal vacation. But we've been commuting down to the city this week. So it's sort of half a uh, staycation. It's gotten complicated.
1: Wait, are you still in Gloucester? Yes. Oh.
0: Well, I mean, right now I'm in the studio in Boston. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're still there for the rest of this week.
1: That's interesting. What what prompted you to like rent that long instead of just going for like your vacation?
0: Uh, it's the availability of the space. It's uh, it tends towards longer rentals, so we sort of had to. It's also nice and it's commutable enough that it kind of made sense and. Uh, Yeah. So I got to actually took a full week off, which I think was good. I tend to do like single days at a time or like two or three days, but it's rare for me to actually take a full week stretch. And it was nice to have the two weekends on the end and actually fully disconnect. And there's also that fun thing that happens right before you go on vacation where you make sure everything's in order and you just check in and you make lists and things like that. Your face is making a face though. Yes, (laughs) Is it a good face or a bad face? I can't tell.
1: It's just, I can relate to what you're saying because before I go on vacation, I feel like that's when I have the most stress. (laughs) Well, not always, but that's often when I will have the most stresses right before I leave for vacation because I'm trying to wrap everything up and get everything that I want done right before then. So it's a buildup of stress and then vacation. So it, it adds to it. And it's just it's a weird it's a weird thing. It is. So.
0: It's always a bit of a challenge. I was surprised and happy with a couple of things sort of naturally fell in place. And I was like, oh, cool. That's cool. I'm just going to go away for a little while. And I mostly ignored emails and things, almost mostly. entirely. Awesome. I, uh, what did I do? I uninstalled Slack on my phone. Oh. I turned off notifications. I have a hotkey on my computer that opens up my ThoughtBot email. So I disabled that. I did a bunch of things to try and get out of the automatic sequence of checking in on work, which was useful because a bunch of times my hands just like naturally did the hotkey for opening ThoughtBot email. And I was like, oh, no. I apparently subconsciously check email a lot. That's good to know about myself, but.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome that you took those steps, those proactive steps to prevent yourself from, from doing that. That's cool, I'm gonna have to remember that. Cause yeah, even when you take a day off, it's nice, but you don't really check out of all that stuff you're still planning for the next day and what you're going to do and you're still in the throes of it but then if you take the full week off and you take that time to remove yourself from having access to like those checking work all the time quirks that's cool. Yep.
0: Yeah. It did definitely highlight though that I, I have a bunch of just like background processes that are like checking on the thing, checking on the thing, checking on the thing. So,
1: yeah, I guess that's the downside to having constant communication. It is sure is. Then we can always check in on our work all the time and Defining new boundaries for that is tough.
0: It is interesting though. my current client, we're working on machines that they gave us, and we need internet, and there's a daily access token reactivation sort of thing. So I have to go through sort of an SSO auth flow in order to connect to the remote server, which is where the code that I'm working on lives. So I actually have no code on my computer, and I'm working with this remote server that I can only access by revalidating every day. It's an annoying set of hurdles every day to have to go through when I'm just working. But on vacation time, I was like, I'm definitely not going to go through all of that. So it's nice that it actually lacked the immediacy. There was no need to install processes to avoid doing that.
1: Yeah, I can see that. That's nice to keep you away from working on the weekends. Do you feel that you are in that space that you do, like you're comfortable with how many hours you work? Do you work on the weekends?
0: Oh, interesting question. The nature of the role that I have now, where I'm both doing consulting work and then also more supportive things within the ThoughtBot office. Things fall outside of the normal hours more than I would like. And so a goal has been to try and push them back in and try and make sure things like this podcast fit within the normal hours and like prepping the show notes for the show. And that's been a purposeful goal, but it was interesting transitioning to this role and having... I would say, sort of a flex out into the other hours, but then a a purposeful attempt to get back to it. And I do appreciate that it's such a core value of ThoughtBot to try and keep things within those core hours.
1: I agree. Yeah, I was just curious where you're at, because I think it's something that even when we have a great company culture, like it's something that we have to be mindful of and proactive, that when we see something slipping outside of those work hours, we have to find ways to bring it back in to the work hours. So we still have our downtime.
0: Yeah, I think I sent an email last night at like 8pm that you were CC'd on. So you know that sometimes I Although Gmail recently added the ability to do deferred send so I can like compose. I didn't do this last night and I probably should have, but I can compose an email and then say, send this in the future, send this at 837 tomorrow morning. I don't know. It feels a tiny bit like lying, but I'm mostly fine with it because my goal is to imply that I'm not a person who is doing work things outside of work hours, even if for my, like maybe I needed to leave a little bit early today. So I'm picking up those 30 minutes at home which is a choice that I've made, I don't want to say like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. Send me an email whenever. So I apologize for doing the opposite of that. But that's a cool feature of technology now that is just available kind of across the platforms if you're using Gmail.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize I could do that. That is a cool feature. This may be weird. I've wanted that for pull request comments. Mm. And then I can't decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing as to why I want it. Because if I'm looking at something and it's in odd hours, say if I'm looking at something late at night and I want to leave a comment, but then I don't want that person to be notified that I just left them a comment because then I'm infringing upon their downtime where they may feel compelled to then go read what I left on Mm -hmm. their on their work. So I can't decide, on one hand, it's nice because I want to protect people if I'm choosing to work late or choosing right. to leave comments. But at the same time, by not having that feature, it may deter me from doing work outside of normal hours. So I can't, I can't decide Ooh. if it's a good feature or a bad feature to have, but I still want it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can, to a small degree, I think, approximate it if you just stage all of the comments, but you don't actually, I forget what the word is because I don't use GitHub anymore. <laughs> Someday, soon, I'll be back to GitHub. But... What is that called?
1: The review. Submit a review.
0: Yeah. So the idea that like you're not just commenting directly, which is the way it used to be. They this is probably a year or more old now, but they introduce the ability to like draft a review. So you make all of the comments and then all together you say like and submit that review. And so people aren't seeing a trickle of comments come in as you leave, you know, across different points in the code.
1: I loved when they launched that feature because. I used to hold back some of my comments to try to wait till I read the rest of the code, but then it's really hard to hold all of those comments in yep. my head. So that was that was brilliant on their part. So I, now I can leave comments. And if I see something that changes a previous comment, I can go back and change it or delete it.
0: That has been the big part for me because multiple times I'll be like, hmm, I feel like you're not considering X or what about this? And then I'll go down and be like, oh, no, you definitely have that. Delete. Never mind. I don't have to look silly in this moment. Thanks, GitHub.
1: Thanks, GitHub, for not letting us look silly. <laughs> So what else is going on with your client?
0: We're actually rounding down the project now. So next week will be our last week. But things are going well. We've implemented, I think, most of the core functionality that we were looking to get. And it's been good overall. We did have one interesting adventure that then actually I sort of, not purposefully, but I carried it into my vacation time as well because I wanted to play around with a couple of things. But the particular thing that we ran into was trying to sort a list. So we had an ordered list. So imagine that like, we're making a to-do list app. Uh, you have a list, and it has a bunch of to-dos on it. And so they're in a particular order. And you can sort that order. Uh, particularly, this is in a client-side application. So there's click and drag. And then at any point, you let go. And so now the whole list is reordered. Technically, the actual implementation, you could simplify it to say item at location 4 moved to location 6. Mm-hmm. It's not a true like complete randomization resort but we roughly modeled it that way. And Edward and I, Edward Lovell uh, was the other developer that I'm working with on this. So he was building the back end of this. I was building the front end, but we really struggled on a bunch of fronts. So there were issues related to database constraints. We wanted to make sure that the position within a list was a unique attribute. So you can't have two items in the list that say I'm at position four. Okay. So
1: we right.
0: had a unique constraint on those, but that makes it very hard to sort. If you go, the the simplest implementation would be to just iterate through the new order and say like, this one's one, this one's two, this one's three. Mm -hmm. You will likely run into an issue with that unique constraint. So we did some research. Turns out Postgres has a wonderful feature here where you can actually defer constraints within a transaction, which is fantastic. You can just say when you're creating the constraint, this is deferrable, and you can also specify is it initially deferred, is it always deferred, is it sometimes deferred, which is all super cool. And I ended up using that in my side projects client project reusing my MySQL. So that didn't work.
1: Oh, bummer.
0: Uh, we were really excited when we found it. Like, this is great. This is exactly what we want. Because once the transaction reaches the end, then it will ensure that we're transactionally consistent, that everything, like, this is great. That is exactly what we want. But it doesn't exist. Mm. So there was that. And then there was a bunch of stuff around rest. And how do you do restful sorting?
1: Restful sorting. Yeah. Like, oh. what's the
0: endpoint? It's very much an action. It sort of wants to be a RPC type of verb endpoint, but we don't, if we're doing REST, we don't want to have verbs in our URLs. So I actually forget what we ended up with. There were a lot of discussions around are we creating an ordering? So there's an ordering resource within the list endpoint or something.
1: Yeah, you're ordering the list and you, I'm maybe simplifying it, but you can't update that particular item in the list to have a position. So you can't, it doesn't make sense to use that particular RESTful endpoint to.
0: I think, so you could in theory. But you're also changing the rest of the list. So there's a side effect that, like, if you move this item from there to there, the other items in the list will shift to accommodate that. And so you're really modifying the whole collection mm-hmm. no matter what. Whether or not that's actually important, I don't know, it gets weird. In the client app, we were using Angular, and Angular actually had some really nice drag uh, and drop utilities. It was very easy to do, but part of the reason it was easy to do was because I was already managing the client side state very manually. So I, when someone would drag and drop, I would just fire off an action to the back end and kind of ignore the response and then update my client-side representation of the order and everybody was happy. But on vacation, I was playing around with another app that had drag and drop stuff, but it was in React and it was using GraphQL. And so React wanted to own the sort order and I needed a way to sync them up and I wanted to do that. It got messy. I was not thrilled with where I ended with that.
1: Interesting. So where did you end up with the actual application that you were working on? What endpoint did you end up with? I'm
0: trying to remember. I think what we ended up with was a patch to the collection endpoint. So the collection, like, say it's to-dos. So it's, like, list slash one slash to-dos. The -hmm. same endpoint that you would post to to create a new to-do, we were patching to that. So patch semantically meaning I'm going to provide you a subset of the information, uh, not the whole thing, not the complete representation, which is what a put would be, I think. But I think it was a patch to the collection, so saying this is an updated representation of some of the data about the collection. I'll be honest; in the process, I was like, I don't really like REST. I'm just, I just want GraphQL now. This would be so easy in GraphQL. And the other app that I played with over vacation, it was GraphQL, and it was very easy to implement that and provide the interface that I wanted, and then also expose the data back that I wanted. So I could ask for like, oh, you know what? This will actually modify the whole list. So give me back the whole list if I want that.
1: So what's the GraphQL endpoint that you're using? to update that collection.
0: So GraphQL from like an endpoint in terms of HTTP just has the one endpoint. Oh, that's right, that's right. the implementation would be a mutation, and then you can call that mutation whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So you can create essentially that RPC-like thing of like update to-dos or reorder to-dos, and that's a mutation that takes in the parent list ID that they're part of, and then in the app that I did, I just sent up the ordered IDs of each of the to-dos, the children in the list, in their new order.
1: Okay. Yeah, I haven't used GraphQL enough that I'm trying to visualize what this looks like. So do you result in having two requests? Do you have one request that mutates the list, and then you do a second request where you get back that list? No, or you, you get you to controlling... do that all in one. Oh, you have to do it all in one. Okay. that's the
0: magic. Well, you don't have to, but oh. you can. Okay. GraphQL, inherently, with mutations, has that built in because mm-hmm. that's such a common sequence of... I'm updating something, but I know that there is a related piece of state that I want to fetch back. So you end up with that sequence of a post or a put immediately followed by a get. GraphQL says, sure, just do whatever. You can query back for anything that the mutation exposes. And the library that I was actually using exposes everything. So you can just query for anything and result to a mutation.
1: Oh, that's cool. But it's still two API calls, right? It's just one. Okay.
0: It's inherent to when you specify a mutation in GraphQL, you say, change the state in this way and return me this data.
1: And you're telling it what to give you yes. back so it can do it all in one. Yep. That's nifty. I didn't know you could do that.
0: It's kind of me to where you want to be. And it's very expressive and lets you say exactly what you want. And the library that I was using for building the GraphQL API for my little side project was something called PostGraphile, which is a library that you can point it at a Postgres database and it will basically reflect on the tables and the relationships and the columns and, frankly, a bunch of other stuff. And it's kind of amazing, but it will just generate a GraphQL API on the fly from that, which is both a terrifying concept, like that much code generation and magic is too magical. But for a little side project, it was a lot of fun. And I also just got to spend more time with Postgres doing this than I had before. So in this case, I used that fancy deferred constraint thing, and that was a lot of fun. That's really cool. So yeah, all total it was interesting the the symmetry I would say between the thing that I was doing for the client project and then the side project and uh, just a bunch of Postgres and GraphQL and other fun things that I don't have great answers to yet but it was fun. And Postgres is great, that that is my main takeaway is, man, do I like Postgres.
1: I'm certainly a fan, I haven't done much with MySQL. My very first developer job, I was using Mongo. Mm. And that was such a shocker because I I just graduated through like a camp, and so all I knew was Postgres. Then to experience Mongo was a total different shift. It was a bit of time before I felt comfortable with it. But even then, I didn't spend too much time there being like a, a first job. I was there for not an incredibly long period of time. And then I moved on and it's been Postgres since then.
0: Mm, it's a dream. Edward, interestingly, all of the projects he's worked on at ThoughtBot have been MySQL. Really? So he's our resident MySQL expert now.
1: Oh, I mean, everybody needs one, right?
0: <laughs> we do. I mean, we're if we're going to run into it in the wild, which it seems we are.
1: Does he choose MySQL because it's a comfort? Because he really likes it? No, 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 he would definitely
0: choose Postgres if okay. given the option. In both cases, he was coming into applications or organizations that that was an organizational decision that had happened beforehand.
1: Okay, so it's a skill that he's mm-hmm. built out of need, not necessarily something that he would have chosen to reach for. Yes. Not a fun project. Okay.
0: Although interestingly, we've learned a bunch of stuff about Postgres like indirectly, because we'll look for the answer to a database question, and the answer will be like, well, if you're in Postgres, it's super easy, and you can do this thing. And if you're in MySQL... Well, let's talk more.
1: That's pain, but that's a cool way to learn stuff. It is. You have to shift away from what you're used to and that you take for granted to then experience what life is like in a different tech stack. And then you realize what you have.
0: It does. It gives you that appreciation. That's what's up with me. Uh, How about you? What have you been up to?
1: I have found myself lately thinking about Rails migrations and how to change production data and specifically how I've seen... Rails migrations being used to change data in addition to also changing a schema. So specifically, I've been thinking a bit further about when is it a good idea to change production data in a migration and when is it a good idea to use a different tool, something like a rake task. And it's been on my mind lately because I know instinctively I will reach for a rake task if I have data that's on production and say if I need to delete certain records or if I want to update data that's there. I will reach for a rake task, but I still see other developers that reach for a migration instead. And I'm curious about that. So if you don't mind my asking, if you're changing data on production, what's your thought process when you go through that?
0: I'm in the camp of folks who use migrations often for data migrations. So... Yeah, Most of that the to-
1: fascinates me. I'm excited to hear this. Okay, great.
0: I guess there's probably a difference or a distinction to be made between pure data migrations. Like, we just want to refactor the data in the system. But the vast majority of the times, it's associated with a schema change. So we're taking a field and we're denormalizing it, or we're changing the nature of a relationship or something like that. And in doing so, we also need to migrate the data. And so often I find that they're sort of naturally coupled. And so For the times that that's true, I'm obviously drawn to keeping them collected within a single transaction, cetera, Because migrations automatically get that, at least within Postgres. uh, I've learned that MySQL is different, but that's aside from the point. But I think I leverage that or I, I appreciate that And then I think as a result of having experienced that, I almost always put data changes in migrations, and I personally avoid putting them in rake tasks. But I don't necessarily feel great about that, especially as you ask me the question.
1: (laughs) Sure. Uh, Well, so let's dive into that a little bit further. So when you talk about changing the data and migration, it sounds like you're either, like if you're changing a column name or if you're moving data from one column to another, do you have an example in mind of... Because I'm curious if this is actually changing production data or if you're adding like a default value to a new column.
0: I think a default value is simple enough that most of the time you can just put it as part of the schema migration. But I think if it were a computed default value or if we're introducing like an additional part of an enum, so an enum used to have only three valid states and now there's a fourth state, and that fourth state we know four objects that have a timestamp of this and this current enum value, then I can compute the value at migration time. And I wanna make that change holistically. I've added this new value for the enum, so there's a draft state to articles. And now I wanna say any article that was created before this date and is currently in the published state, they're actually, they should be drafts or something like that. But the broader, I just wanna change data in the system. I'm struggling to think of a time where I've really run into that that wasn't coupled to also a schema change.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Because yeah, I can see from just that one particular example that you provided, that feels like a safer change to make in a migration, because it's likely going to be easy to write in pure SQL. And it's not going to work with any of the existing behavior that's in the application. So you're avoiding that concern of referencing a class that's in the application, and then the interface for that class may change. And then you'll end up with a broken migration. So it sounds like that's not an issue for the type of data changes that we're talking about at the moment. I guess I'm thinking of some of the heavier data changes. Say if you want to delete data that was created before a certain date for a reason, is that something that you think you'd also put in a migration? And let's say there's also a column that's getting added, so it feels convenient to bundle these changes together.
0: The way you're asking the question makes me want to answer. No, I would do something else, but I'm pretty, I am I would likely go for a migration or for being entirely honest, I would probably open a console and muck about with production data. That's a thing that depending on the size of the organization, depending on the complexity of the data, depending on my comfort level with it, that's something that I do plenty. And again, in this moment, I'm like, should I? Is that a thing that I should be doing as much? Well, I I don't want to imply that I do this a lot, but it's a thing that I've plenty of times I've opened up a production console and uh, and I'll test against staging and I'll typically write a script and I'll have a pair that's working with me on this. And then through various, like there are Tmux mechanisms that I'll use to actually I'll have a script that I've tested against staging and then I can rerun that identical set of code on production. But I sort of tend to avoid the rigor of a rake task because that involves... Going through code review, which I love code review, but then also getting this deployed. And then there's this artifact. There's this rake task that most often these are one-time things. And so I don't want that being part of the code base, Uh, maybe. But then again, I I would say that I like the migrations because they are part of the history. They explain the evolution of the app over time. So I feel like as I'm saying this, I I have sort of internally inconsistent views on the matter. And it's very much a case-by-case basis. But why do you like the rake tasks? I'm intrigued.
1: You mentioned something that stands out to me, which is one of the reasons that I like rake tasks when you mentioned that it's something that you don't want to keep around forever. And I like rake tasks for that reason, just because if I put it into a migration, that file is going to stay around forever. And I find that most of the data changes that I'm making are typically business logic and not something that needs to persist throughout the lifetime of the app. And if I put it in a rake task, then I can test it. I do like going through that code review portion, although I certainly understand I've done the same where if it's something fairly trivial on a smaller database, I can have a pair or someone provide a second set of eyes before I run something on a production database. But otherwise, I love going through the code review process to make sure that it has the behavior that I expect and others can verify that it looks good. And then once that rake task has served its job and I've migrated or changed the data, I can delete it. That's probably one of my favorite parts is then I just don't need to keep this around.
0: Do you always delete it? I think so. Do others always delete the rake tasks? Probably not. So a couple of interesting things there. One, your highlighting of testing is a thing that I don't think about that much, but the ability to actually using the tools and the, the mechanisms that we have to be able to actually test this sort of data migration and make sure it behaves as we would expect, that is really nice and not something that I think about as much. Although typically when you're doing something like this, it's dealing with large amounts of data in a production-like instance. So your ability to replicate that within the test suite, it can vary depending on how good the factory is and the data. Like, sure. Is the data of this system very user-specific or is it general? But beyond right. that, I do want to say like, I definitely value the code review aspect if I'm using a rake task because I find code review to be very much a value add. I dislike the deploy latency having to, like, okay, I want to migrate the production data. I don't know. I have to go through a bunch of steps, and it puts that much latency between it. And then knowing if I'm going to be a good Samaritan, I should clean that up after the fact if I don't want it to hang around. So now we've got two separate loops of that. But I don't think those are great reasons to not do it. And I think the rig task has a lot of benefits.
1: I think it's a reasonable... Complaint might be a strong word, but I think it's a reasonable concern or why others prefer to reach for a migration instead of using a rake task, because it is more tedious. You have to, first, you're going to use a rake task, and then you'll likely want to write test coverage for that. If we make the change in a migration file, I don't think anyone's going to say, hey, would you write tests for that? Um, So there is an extra step that's going to go with that. And then there is the deploy process, and then accessing the production console and then running that rake task and then also potentially cleaning it up. So there are more steps to it for sure. But then I also I'd prefer going through those additional steps. So I don't have a deploy that is now contingent on that data being migrated since that portion is going to run in addition to my migration. So for that deploy to be successful, I now have to wait for that data to be migrated for the migrations to run. And then if it fails, I'm going to be in a highly more stressed state of solving a failed deploy than if I have to go through tedious steps of just running a rake task and then removing that rate test later. I'd rather have the boring life than the more stressful situation. So even though it's tedious, I think that's why I prefer it.
0: I mean, as you say that sentence, I'd rather have the boring life than the the more stressful one. That's a thing that I believe deeply about coding. So if nothing else, that sells me on your stance.
1: Cool. All right. Day one. <laughs> But yeah, that's uh, just been on my mind because it's something that I instinctively do. I'll reach for rate task, and I, I strongly prefer them. But I'm, I'm really interested in knowing when others feel it's far more achievable and easy to reach for migration. It also might be related to some of the documentation for, like if you go and read about the active record migrations in the Rails guides, I think back for Rails 3, they used to advocate for changing data and migrations because it was a very convenient place that you could put this all together in one file and then it goes out together. And then around Rails 4, they changed the documentation to no longer reference the classes just because there are some pains that can be felt there if you reference a class that has changed and it's just not as future-proof. Um, so that was an interesting shift. And perhaps that may be one reason that we still have a lot of blog posts or a lot of thoughts around still using migrations first when rake tasks to me just feel like the the better approach.
0: That does seem like a win.
1: On a note unrelated to migrations, I discovered that you can adopt emojis.
0: Adopt emojis? You can
1: adopt an emoji.
0: I don't understand how those words go together in a sentence.
1: Yeah. I found this because I was reading about the preview for Ruby 2.7. And some of the links that i had followed through took me to the Unicode changes that have been proposed. And there are some new emojis that are being introduced. And that foundation works very hard to make sure that these characters work across all languages and all platforms. And to support their work, you can adopt emoji, which it just seems fun. So there's a couple different layers you can adopt. I think you like a gold standard. Or maybe, yeah, I think it's adopt is a the term they use. Although I'm thinking sponsor now as I'm thinking through the different levels. You can be gold level. You can be, I think, silver and bronze. Uh, I think the bronze is like around $100. Gold level might be like 1000 or more for it.
0: Who's this money going to? And what's it, what is...
1: It's going to the Unicode Consortium. That's where the money's going. So the Unicode Consortium, they help modern software and computing systems support the range of all human languages. So there's more than like 120,000 characters that can be adopted. And then they say that any money made from this process goes back into their foundation to then continue their work. I think it's just a fun way that they've gotten people to donate money to their organization. Hmm. So some of the ones that I saw, Elasticsearch has the curly braces, the left and right. They've taken on two. And then Google has the hamburger. Oakland Athletics has the baseball.
0: Huh. Can only one group... At any time, sponsor?
1: Yes, unless I think you're gold level. If you're gold level, then you get to be the only sponsor of that emoji, and you have to pay a lot more money for that. But if you're at the bronze or silver level, then yeah, many people could have it. And you don't get to link. So they do have a page where you can see who's sponsored or who's adopted, which emojis or Unicode characters. And then if you've paid enough money, you get to link back to your organization. So it's not just your name. Or if you are at the bronze level, then it it may just show your name, but you don't get to include a link.
0: I think there are a few different robot emojis, but we're going to have to pick our favorite and ThoughtBot's going to have to sponsor one.
1: I think I saw that someone already took the robot because I was looking for that one. I also saw that a person at the gold level sponsored the poop emoji.
0: (laughs) It's an important emoji. Uh,
1: (laughs) So that was a very strong statement on their part.
0: Uh, (laughs) Okay,
1: I've gotten us totally off track.
0: (laughs) That's fine. That's what a podcast is for. Yeah, well, we're going to shift gears ever so slightly here, and we have another listener question this week. So again, just to highlight it, we uh, really appreciate folks reaching out and sending in these questions. You can send them to hosts at Bikeshed.fm or either Steph or I on Twitter. But yeah, for this week, we have a question from Aji Slater on consulting versus coding. So Steph, I will will run through this question, and then we'll get your thoughts, and I'll probably add some in at the end as well. That's great. So the question is... I'd love to hear more about ThoughtBot's philosophy and practice around being a consultant. We get to hear a lot about the development process of creating code, but not too much about how you approach the relationship with the client. How do you teach them agile like processes of developing software? How do you navigate their requests and finding the underlying needs? And what's the most important to you in consulting work versus product work? So, Steph, what are your thoughts on that question from Aji?
1: That's a great question. Thanks, Aji. There's a lot that we can unpack there. So, I think I heard three big questions. One is how do we teach the agile-like process of developing software? The other one is how do we navigate their requests with finding what the underlying needs are and how to meet them? And then what's the most important to you in consulting work versus product work? Let's work backwards Mm -hmm. with that last one. So what's the most important in consulting work versus product work? I like to think that they're very similar, that there's not a hard distinction between the consulting work and product work. Having worked at product companies and working at a consultancy, I find that my day to day is still very similar like I'm still very much a part of that product team and helping them build out features and there's not a hard separation of what I would do differently if I were on that product team versus joining that team as a consultant
0: yes I, I definitely share that This feels like dichotomy that we run into often or folks view it as you're doing code or you're doing product and those are two very separate things. But in my view, especially in our work, but then I think this is the model we try and head towards is the more there's a little bit of an overlap there, the more that products and development are interacting, are communicating, are sharing a process around how everyone figures out what to do, the better. And so I think that's part of our goal is to demonstrate that process. And I think the larger the organization goes, the more you might have to have A bit more of a separation there, but even separation, ideally in my mind, there's never like two distinct camps that throw things over the wall and back and forth. It's always a collaboration. And the smaller the group, the more I think that overlap should be.
1: Do you mean the camps between the consultant group that's joining and the product team or which which two camps do you mean? I'm
0: referring to like product management and developer And so we bill ourselves as digital product consultants with like you and I focus on development. So people often think of us as developers. You can come in and you can write the code. That's the thing that that we're going to do. But ideally in that process, we're actually working a lot with product managers and product owners and figuring out what the needs are and then helping to implement that. I don't associate that with the consulting aspect of our work. I consider that like we're product developers and that's I want everyone doing that, not just us.
1: I agree. I think the biggest distinguishment I've seen between the being a consultant, being part of a team as a consultant versus being part of a product team is that I've had more exposure to different teams and how they solve problems and maybe solved the same problem a couple times across different platforms since I have changed teams about every four or five months. So that part feels like, the biggest difference between being a consultant and being on that product team, but I imagine that's true for then each developer on that team is that they're going to pull from their experience. So yeah, I guess I just haven't seen them as too different, except that I know that I'll be moving on from that project in five to six months versus staying on indefinitely.
0: I've thought about that aspect of our work a bunch. So that is, I think, a distinction in that we often are joining teams and that we're there for a fixed amount of time. May not be known, but it's typically, you know, like you said, four to six months. And by virtue of that, it does shape how we think about things a little bit. We're more focused on onboarding and we're more focused on shared responsibility and ownership because we know we can't own it and we can't take it with us when we go. But I think that's, that's something that I think is a good philosophy for any team to have, regardless of if you know that folks are going to leave because folks will leave. And in general, I think teams are better when there's more distributed, understanding of all the different aspects of the code and it's not like oh the billing system you know jerry takes care of the billing system jerry's the billing guy like that's not good we want everybody so that you can have code review so that you can have shared ownership so that if someone goes on vacation even it's not like oh no billing can't have a problem for the next two weeks or else we are all in trouble
1: totally agree so one of the other interesting questions that asked is how do you navigate requests finding the underlying needs and how do you meet them That's a fun one because I don't have a strict set of guidelines that I follow to understand what's an underlying need versus something that maybe the client doesn't realize that they need. It's one of those like discovery throughout the process of where you join the team and you find out where some of the pain points are. And then you start to have very honest conversations about where the goals that they're headed and just asking for maybe it's user feedback.
0: The main in terms of like tactics around this that come to mind for me are always striving to make sure what we're discussing is in terms of user facing value, Mm -hmm. as much as humanly possible. So sometimes it is like refactor the data model for reasons. And that's hard to put into user centric, like you can try and I actually have seen those sort of Trello cards that are like, as a user, I want the data model to be refactored so that the app can probably be faster someday. And so that's, I think that's an overfit, but in general, trying to make sure we're not saying, like, add a button to the UI that sends an email. It's, as a user, I want to be notified when X happens. And so then if the recommended implementation is something that I, as the developer, know, oh, that actually won't achieve that end goal, that user need, I have that information about the real user need, and I can use that to push towards that. One of the other things that I've done is... It's actually with the client that you're working with right now and that I'll be working with again in a few weeks. I asked if we could have the sales team present a sales demo to the developer team. I wanted to see what are the words and the features of this application that you use when you're talking to users, prospective clients... Um, What matters about this thing? What do people care about that are going to be buying it and using it? And that was very informative. I was like, you didn't even touch that part of the app that we have been spending a lot of time working on, but you talked a lot about this thing that I didn't even know existed. That's interesting to me. That informs everything I'm going to do from here on.
1: Yes, I remember that. I was a part of that. And that was super helpful because, yeah, the app is big enough that there were certain areas that I had worked on and knew about, but there were other important features that users loved and that they were using. And I just didn't know that that was part of the app because I hadn't had the opportunity to work on it. As for finding out someone's underlying needs, I think it comes down to... Trust is the biggest one. There's no good way to find out what someone's not telling you, except to build that relationship and to gain trust with them. So you are the person that they come and talk to whenever they have a question or they have a problem or they just need someone to bounce ideas off of. And that's the way that I'll find out more about what the team needs versus what's on the surface level of what we are brought in to do. And then circling back, since we're doing these a little bit in reverse, how do we teach them the agile-like process process? That one, I think, also stems a lot around trust because it's very hard to suggest change to a team if you don't have the trust of that team. So I think that's a big part of it as well. But the first step in my mind is always adopt their method of how they work and then- go that route first and see where the pain points are and go into it with an open mind. And then once you're able to identify where are the pain points do, do I have suggestions that I think could change that process to make it more agile-like. But I try to go in with the open mind first. If this team does have a way that they work, I don't want to interrupt that from the get go. I want to first learn a bit more about their way and their processes, and then I can start to make small suggestions on how to move towards a more agile process.
0: Although if they're not doing code review, I might start doing code review immediately.
1: Yes, I'm, there are... <laughs> (laughs) There are a
0: handful of deal breakers, I'd say. Yes,
1: there are a couple that I would advocate for heavily. But otherwise, if it's not a deal breaker like code review, then I will try to understand their ways first. Even then, honestly, if it's not code review, I may wait like a day and just like see because I want to know how the team works and understand their decisions. And then I will start to ask those questions about, hey, like, what if we reviewed code? (laughs)
0: I was saying that mostly in jest, but this is actually something that I would say has changed in my approach to consulting over time. I think I used to come in a a little hotter, a little more like, no, we're going to do this, this, and this. These are the ways and want to get there that much more quickly. And now I think I take a similar tack to what you're describing of, let's just get a lay of the land first. Let's see what's going on. And there's also... In everything that we do, there's always prioritization. So maybe they're not doing code review, but maybe also the test suite is broken and has been for a month. And I need to pick which of those I'm going to start with because I probably can't do both at the same time. Or maybe the app doesn't load. It takes 20 seconds to load the home page, and they're losing users as a result. Let's start there. Let's fix the things that are on fire and then slowly work through. So it's not that we can come in and just fundamentally change things. But I think mostly we try and do it by example as well. And I think it's one of the benefits when we have more than one ThoughtBotter on a project is we can often demonstrate it you know, with our team rather than trying to force a process on people. We can demonstrate it alongside the team and then start to try and bring folks in. Whereas like trying to push our style of code review on people can get a negative reaction at times, despite the fact that I think we try and be very friendly in code review, believe in that strongly. But still, if it's a different thing, if it's someone coming in from the outside and attempting to impart change, that's always a delicate sort of thing, so.
1: Yes, yeah, it's a lot easier when we do have more than one of us on the team, because it helps sort of have that example, like you said, lead by demonstration, where we can show how we're accustomed to working together and then also show those moments of like, this is how we would do it. So then you can gain some buy-in that way.
0: I do have a, a question for you related to this question. Aji asked specifically about agile processes. And I think that word means different things to different people. And in like again, a change that's happened to me, the A has become increasingly less capitalized. And to me, agile just means probably the minimum process we can get away with. People over processes shipping real software over comprehensive documentation. Basically the Agile manifesto is the thing that I care about and I'm less and less interested in things like Scrum or I guess I really like pair programming which comes from extreme programming. But what what do you think of when you think of the word Agile?
1: I like how you said it's people over processes. Because Agile is one of those ways of working that I've seen demonstrated and that I've followed other teams and then identified things that I do don't like about the process, but I don't have like a concrete, like hard definition of like what Agile is. But I think I would come back to that idea that it's people over processes in the sense that teams are collaborating with each other to make decisions. And there's never a couple of decision makers that are then handing work over to another team to complete. That's probably one of my biggest anti-definitions of Agile. And then shipping iteratively, I think is the other biggest one. I want to ship as much as frequently as possible with changes that are meaningful to the user. But then that way you're shipping on a frequent basis and you're shipping small changes, ideally, that are going out frequently.
0: Those sound like the core pieces in my mind as well. But again, something that I've... Probably just sort of chilled out about over time.
1: That's funny that you came in with a hard definition. Well, not came in just now with a hard definition, but it sounds like you entered software development with a hard definition of Agile.
0: I think I was more intrigued by some of the tooling and workflow and things like JIRA and burn down charts and things like that and sprints. And frankly, I think most of the stuff that I'm listing comes from extreme programming the book, which is not, it's sort of a follow on to Agile as far as I understand it. But over time, I've come to just kind of revisit the Agile manifesto and be like, oh, that's like five sentences. And I like those. And that's more what I associate with it. And Scrum as a particular thing is something that I've definitely moved away from. And the few times I've been involved in teams that have used it, I've been like, this this feels like a lot of process. And if anything, I feel like it may be causing indirection and less iteration and less fluidness and communication within a team.
1: Scrum's interesting because it's What I remember from doing Scrum is that we spent a week like talking about the process and how to how to do Scrum correctly. And the (laughs) fact that it took us a week to train or to talk about Scrum, and I'm sure there are Scrum experts out there that may disagree with me heavily on how long this should take. And it should have been easier. But my personal experience, I I think we took about a week of refining and understanding Scrum and what we were supposed to do. But it took a a good bit of time away from dev time. And I, I never felt like we really got that time back. I don't think it accelerated us or improved things. So yeah, Scrum didn't particularly work for me. Also story points were were one of the things that came out of Scrum that I've also developed opinions on.
0: And blog posts.
1: And I've written a blog post on
0: it. It's a great blog post.
1: Co-authored with Matthew Sumner. But I think all of this comes back to a lot of the how do you navigate a team's underlying needs? How do you influence their process to be more agile-like or whichever way you're trying to influence their process? Always comes down to first going into that setting with an open mind, trying to understand all of their needs first, and then suggesting your processes to them, I think is the the biggest part. Because most people that I've run into, if I have a hard opinion on something, and then they have a very hard opinion a different way or it's different, I take that moment to reset and say, okay, forget my hard opinion. And let's first understand theirs just because it's interesting to understand where they're coming from. And they'll probably teach me something along the way. And if they don't, then maybe I'll teach them something along the way.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that was a great summary, Steph. And thank you so much, Aji, for the question. So I think we will probably wrap up the episode there. But we have, I think, one more quick thing that we want to do. Steph, do you want to lead us in on this?
1: Yes, we've been asking listeners to send us questions. And we received a really fun email where I I don't know if they're a listener, but they sent us a song. And so we took time to listen to that song and we want to share it with you all.
0: I'm going to be honest. I did not initially. I uh, thought it was spam and I set it aside. But Steph, thank you. You rightfully brought this back to my attention. Oh,
1: it might still be. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I
0: agree. They're probably not listeners.
1: I don't know if they've specifically sent us a song, but Actually, I'm going to take that it that sent way. it to a
0: few other podcasts. Yes. But again, to encourage <laughs> listeners to send us in questions and comments and really to engage with our audience. Uh, this is Pepper Juice, who are a DJ producer duo from Paris and this is their remix of kill this love by black pink and we'll send you out with that
1: Show notes for this episode can be found at Bikeshed.fm.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter.
1: If you have any feedback for this or any of our episodes, you can reach us at underscore Bikeshed or reach me at S. Vicarri on Twitter.
0: And I'm at Chris Toomey.
1: Or host at Bikeshed.fm via email.
0: Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next bike shed. Bye. Bye. Let's get- This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.